Hello, and welcome to another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium in the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues and ideas in public education. My name is David Naff. I am the Associate Director of Merck and the host of this podcast. Today, I'm joined by the authors of a capstone report from the VCU School of Education titled Increasing Student Access to Mental Health Services in Virginia Through Staffing and Structures. An executive summary of the report offers itemized recommendations at the state level and is available for download on the Merck website. And the full report is available through the VCU Scholars Compass page, which we're going to have linked um, in the description for this episode. This research also relates to our Merck Supporting Mental Health in School study, and one of the authors of this report uh, is also a co-principal investigator on our research team. So we were eager to invite this team to share about their findings because it's uh, so clear what the implications are for the state. Um, and let me introduce everyone to you now. Um, and uh, I'll just say sort of at the onset that um, everybody that I'm getting ready to introduce did this project as a capstone. So these are all doctors now. So congratulations to <laughs> all the doctors that are on this call. Um, so first we have Erin Sturgis. Erin, uh, who's a three-time RAM from VCU, earned her BS in psychology, her master's in education and special education, and uh, EDD in educational leadership from Virginia Commonwealth University. Erin served as a special education teacher in private day correctional career and technical education in comprehensive middle school settings prior to transitioning to administration. Erin currently works at the Virginia Department of Education, serving as a special education recruitment and retention specialist, while also supporting Virginia's work related to multi-tiered systems of supports. Erin's research interests include examining the intersection between implementation and improvement sciences and their connection to systems change with the goal of ensuring student access to high quality academic and mental health supports. Erin, um, I see you all the time because you're on our research team, but welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Julie Ellis uh, is a Virginia native and was a first generation college student. She earned her bachelor's degree in health education from Virginia Commonwealth University, her master's degree from the College of William and Mary, and her doctorate from Virginia Commonwealth University. Julia was a high school health and physical education teacher and coach for 11 years, athletic director for two years, and high school assistant principal for six years. During her time as an administrator, she supervised the school counseling department and was the division safety coordinator. Julie now serves as the executive director of a regional career and technical center and Governor's STEM Academy, serving six rural communities. Julie, welcome. We're so happy to have you. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Kate Pushjack uh, is originally from Pennsylvania, but now calls Virginia her home. She has 18 years of experience in education. Kate received her undergraduate degree at Marywood University in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Her master's and doctoral degrees were both completed at Virginia Commonwealth University. Kate was a classroom teacher for nine years in different Title I schools in the Richmond area. From there, she held a variety of administrative roles that include resource teacher, associate principal, director of operations and student services for an Achievable Dream Certified Academy, and assistant principal. Kate is currently the proud principal of an elementary school in Northern Virginia in Loudoun County. She's had a passion for supporting student mental health and SEL or social emotional learning since long before she was a classroom teacher and it is something that continues to be a priority. As a leader of a school of 530 students, Kate, so glad to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Did I get your last name right, Pushjack? You did. All right. Good. You spelling it phonetically was very helpful. 
Uh, and then Teresa O'Day is a first-generation college student. She graduated with her BA in elementary education and psychology from the College of William & Mary, her master's in education and special education from Old Dominion University, and her EDD from Virginia Commonwealth University. She has worked for 13 years in public elementary education, serving as a general education teacher, special education teacher, and now as an assistant principal. She is passionate about creating equitable learning environments, empowering families to build collaborative relationships with schools. Teresa, welcome Hi. to the show. Hi, thank you for having us today. And uh, people who are listening can't see this right now, but it is hat day at Teresa's school, so she's rocking a VCU hat. So I am. I'm very Just proud. Imagine that. Um, and then there's one more author on this report who wasn't able to join us today. Um, but Maggie Hartley, we want to make sure that we um, acknowledge her, uh, her contributions to this work. Maggie is a museum educator who's passionate about educating audiences of all ages with history and veterans experiences. She is currently the director of public engagement at the National World War II Museum in New Orleans, Louisiana, overseeing public programming, outreach, and interpretation. She previously planned and executed all educational programming at the National D-Day Memorial in Bedford, Virginia. She also co-founded Central and Southwest Virginia Honor Flight in 2018, which escorts veterans to Washington, D.C. to see their memorials. She recently completed her Doctor of Education degree in Ed Leadership from Virginia Commonwealth University and holds a Master's of Arts in History and Bachelor in Science and Social Studies from Liberty University. So Maggie's not with us for this episode today, but um, really grateful for her contributions to the research that we're getting ready to share. Um, so let's dig into this work that everyone did. Um, and Teresa, starting with you, so just to give us some foundation for this project. So besides this being a capstone project, what was the rationale behind this project? What were the needs that you saw related to student mental health support in Virginia schools? Yeah, so as you all just heard, most of us were working in schools at the time we did this research. And I think we collectively were seeing the impact of COVID and the rise of not only behavioral, but true mental health needs and crises in our school. And it was something that was really like heartfelt work for us and very meaningful and important. And as we began to dive deeper into this, we began to uncover the layers that not only were we seeing mental health needs arise and addressing them in crisis mode at like a level of tier three intervention, um, we were really not targeting these needs efficiently in public education either. So we had a lot of overlap and then we also had a lot of gaps. Um, and so as the, the layers unpeeled, we really felt very passionate and very strongly about the importance of this work. Teresa, just a, a just quick follow-up to that. So the, the COVID impact that you were talking about, that's a big focus of the research that we've been doing related to mental health with Merck as well. Um, everything that we've read about it has been like, there was already a rising mental health need in schools, but COVID kind of amplified it to a point where we really need to make sure that this is something that we're prioritizing right now. Is that consistent with what you've seen in your work? Yeah, absolutely. Not only did we see the frequency increase, we really saw the intensity increase as well. And so like I'm in the elementary setting and we were doing multiple threat assessments a month and we were seeing students really escalate quickly from seemingly okay to needing intensive interventions and um, just really not knowing or having the capacity to handle these big emotions. Um, and so it was very, very alarming. And I think it not only was taking up in public education by surprise, it was really impacting families as a whole as well. And so definitely meaningful and important work coming out of this pandemic. 
Right. Absolutely. So um, undeniably, this, there's just a lot of urgency to the to the work that's being done related to mental health. So um, it's a great thing that your your team was um, willing to focus on it in this way. So Aaron, let's talk through your methods a little bit. What was your methodology for this study? Because exploring this statewide is such a huge undertaking. So how did you decide that this was the best approach to understanding how to expand access to school-based mental health providers in Virginia? So that's a great question, and it's um, something just to give a little bit of context to. Our capstone is a dissertation in practice, so we worked with a partner um, who submitted a request for assistance, and in this case, that was the Virginia Department of Education Office of Student Services, and so their request for assistance really looked at how to increase the number of school mental health providers in the state of Virginia, but with the ultimate outcome of ensuring that students were receiving access to high-quality mental health supports within schools, and so initially, we conducted a rather comprehensive literature review and we recognized as a team that it was a little bit more complicated than increasing just the number um, of school mental health professionals, because we also needed to look at which school mental health professionals were we talking, social workers, psychologists, school counselors, um, what they were doing in those divisions, how students knew to access those supports. And so really, we ended up with um, a number of research questions about student access that did include um, recruitment and retention, but kind of expanded beyond that. And in working with our partner, um, VDOE was very excited. They wanted to know from a systemic comprehensive lens how to provide that support. And so as a result, we decided um, to kind of approach it from a mixed method design where we had kind of three components. One, we did a document analysis of all public-facing um, documents from specific school divisions that met certain uh, selection criteria, just to see how easy it was as a parent or a student or a community member to navigate the site and find out how students could receive mental health support in schools should they choose. Um, we also conducted focus groups with um, current mental health providers outside of schools and graduate students who were um, in school to become school mental health professionals and kind of talked about why they chose that route or why they would choose to work community-based rather than schools, um, what their experiences were. And that was very enlightening. Um, it, it gave us some research points to dig into a little bit deeper, even in the literature that we hadn't considered having not experienced that ourselves as um, since none of us are school mental health providers, even though we work closely with them. Um, and then we did a survey from the quantitative lens so we could analyze kind of the perception of building and division level leaders who support and supervise school mental health providers. We asked them, what do you think this, these school mental health providers are doing during the day? How are they allocating their time? And then we asked school mental health providers the same thing and, and looked at those two comparatively and said, is there a disconnect? Where do we see um, connection? Where do we see that there may be a lack of understanding as well? And so we analyzed all of that data together to kind of look at next steps in terms of recommendations. Right. So it makes sense to take a mixed methods approach for something that's um, as dynamic as the study, I think, because you really need that triangulating evidence to, to support the claims that you're making for sure. And so you mentioned that you partnered with VDOE for this project. And I know that this is kind of the foundation for the work that we do with Merck, that we we really kind of perceive that when you do educational research in partnership with 
a practitioner entity that it just it makes the research better because it maximizes the potential for it to actually be used. Could you just share a little bit more about like how do you feel like the research was maybe enhanced specifically because of your partnership with VDOE all along the way? Absolutely. Um, and, and at the time, I was not an employee of VDOE, so none of us were internal um, to the Department of Education, and they were incredibly accessible in terms of being able to share um, data with us, uh, most of which was public-facing data, but they were able to help us um, access it in a way that made it more easy for us to analyze. They were also able to provide a lot of contextual information and so as we brought them kind of themes that we were seeing from literature to discuss where our next steps were in terms of driving our research and as we were preparing um, the different tools for data collection, they were able to really help inform that as well. And so they were accessible for meetings and to, to discuss things virtually. And, and I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit more later, but um, I'm just incredibly encouraged by how they are using the work that we've done. And so I think through the entire process, they were really focused on having usable products. Um, you know, they wanted an executive summary that they would be able to use internally for planning, but also in order to, you know, share with stakeholders who are in charge of making policy and allocating funding. You know, these are the next steps we want to take. Here's why this is the data to support it. Um, and so that also in addition to helping kind of drive our methods, it really helped drive the deliverables that we came up with as a result of this, in addition to the dissertation, some things that they would actually be able to use in practice, such as the executive summary that you mentioned earlier. Right, and that's a useful lesson for those of us in academia, that if you, if you want your research to get used, consider how you're communicating it and do it in partnership with the, the folks that you're hoping to, to actually uh, improve the education systems for, right? So having that kind of partnership is really important and being mindful about how you're actually communicating your data. And speaking of data, in our conversations around mental health in Merkin with the state, I know that there's been understanding that there's some access to publicly available data related to mental health, but there's clearly opportunity for more to be available out there. Julie, can you talk through what your recommendations were from this study around future data, uh, data collection um, related to school-based mental health providers? Absolutely. Um, one of the things that we noticed as we were kind of digging into everything is the lack of clarity with specifically the definitions and the roles and responsibilities for different um, school mental health professionals. So while, you know, school counselors, school social workers, school psychologists had very clear definitions, some of the other roles um, were not as clearly defined. So in data collection, when addressing those questions of how many of X type of school mental health professionals, and they would identify it as an other or a nurse or a school counselor. Some were very easy to identify and, and answer those questions, and other times it was not as clear and, and, and as easy to answer. So um, first, we think it's important for them to really say, these are our school mental health professionals. This is what they do. This is their role. This is their title. This is their responsibility. So the people on the data collection end can actually know exactly how to report it and to get back to schools. Um, we also felt that a lot of times with data collection that you didn't know who was answering the survey, that it would go to someone in the building and it would get dispersed to someone else. Um, so to have those clear definitions helps that person who might not know all of the division um, or how other buildings function, but also, um, you know, just to clarify who that person is, what their role is, so we know what 
their lenses that they're collecting this data through, for lack of a better way of saying it. Um, even if that happened to be a single point of contact in a division, um, obviously, even through those of us in this group right here, we have large discrepancies in the sizes of the divisions in Virginia. So for example, one, one division may have 3,000 students and another one has 90,000 students. Um, to see who's collecting that data is important and you know what their role is. So maybe having a single point of contact, making clear definitions, clear guidelines for reporting um, as it pertains to um, and that's the recommendation to the state. My mind all automatically goes there because that's why we did this whole research. Um, but if you're in a division looking to collect this research, this information, I would say look at similar divisions in your size to see what they're doing and mirror that and their recommendations and kind of the practice that they currently have. Right. Um, and I I remember when I was a high school counselor, I would get home at the end of the day and my wife would ask me what I had done that day. And I couldn't remember because so much had happened, right? Because there's just so much that happens during a school day. And so one of the questions that we've had is like, how do you actually collect data about what school-based mental health providers are doing? Like to collect some evidence about what their interventions are, how they're actually supporting students because they're impacting students in so many ways. So I'm wondering if there's any kind of insights that maybe got generated from your research about um, ways to to maybe capture that. Like any thoughts on potential data collection efforts that could capture the impact of these school-based mental health providers? Well, um, Aaron kind of alluded to before that we we really tried to dig in on what the difference in perceptions of these roles and responsibilities were. Um, what we found is that school administrators know that their counselors or you know all of these SMHPs are doing work that's not really counseling, um, you know, attendance meetings and um, testing a lot of times, um, residency, things like that. And in their mind, they were, you know, their SMHPs were very tied to administrative type tasks. Um, what was interesting is when we talked to the school counselors, they were very consumed with reactive mental health crisis style tasks. So we think it's important to talk to the people with the boots on the ground and ask them specifically what it is that you're spending your time doing, um, because I think that their reality is very different than the perception from outside. And that was very telling for us to be able to say, okay, this is a big aha moment. You know, these people are, are just strapped with mental health work. They're not actually doing what they were necessarily trained to do. And while they're trained to do both, um, there are people who are there who should really be dealing with these tier one, tier two, tier three health, uh, mental health issues rather than, you know, the school counselor dealing with all levels of it every single day. So I would say being very specific about um, how you ask the question and who you ask the question to, because you're going to get a different answer from the person who's actually doing the work every day versus someone who they report to. Right. That makes sense. And it's definitely a working theory of our study, too, that we kind of have a an all hands on deck kind of moment when it comes to supporting mental health in schools. But like you said, there are people in the school, the school based mental health providers who are already specifically have the training to be able to do this. So freeing up their time to make sure that they're able to focus on it is so important. And you mentioned the different tiers of intervention that are available. Kate, can you walk us through what are tier systems of support as they specifically relate to mental health in Virginia schools? And what recommendations emerged from these systems for the research? Of course. Um, I will start by saying that we could probably do a whole hour podcast on just these tiered systems of support. Right. <laughs> but for us, um, we all know that many school divisions are already using tiered systems of support, whether it's through MTSS, which is multi-tiered -tier systems of support, or through VTSS, the Virginia Tiered Systems of Support. 
So, however, when we're looking at all of those tiers, tiered systems of support, most of them are focused on the academics, um, academics and then behavior. But our research does show that um, Virginia schools need to develop specific tiered systems of support to support students' mental health as well, because it all goes hand in hand with student success. Um, so what do we mean by this? Um, there needs to be baseline data available to help schools determine what level of support might be needed. So tier one supports are those supports that are provided to all students. Um, and then our tier two supports are provided for students who may need some interventions. Um, and then tier three supports are also interventions, but those are the more intensive interventions that can be provided to students. Um, the one thing to keep in mind is that tiered systems always need to start with data. So one thing BDOE could select, either select or provide a vetted list of universal screeners um, that kind of support collecting data or that baseline data around student mental health, um, then we would have to figure out how are they using the data and how are they tiering their students. So based on research, we feel the VDOE can develop and provide guidance documents that would help incorporate student mental health interventions into existing tiered systems of support. Um, one thing that we did provide was an example of a mental health resource map that outlines the different tiers. So it's broken down into tier one, tier two, and tier three. And then it's kind of spread out. It gives you some evidence-based evidence practices that can be used. For example, a tier one support would be SEL students for all, SEL lessons for all students. A tier two intervention might be a checkout, check-in, check-out um, situation with a student. And then a tier three could be some direct therapeutic services provided to a student. Um, another thing that's included on the resource map is the amount of time that the intervention needs to be done. Um, how are you informing the parents of this intervention? And then what staff member would be responsible for the intervention? Is it a classroom teacher? Is it a school counselor? Is it a school psychologist? Or is it an outside provider? Um, so this type of resource map could be built out by schools and by divisions um, based on what resources they have available to them, because we do know that different sized school divisions have different resources that they have at their, their, hand, their fingertips. And then one thing, when considering tier three supports, we think that schools really need some guidance on how to successfully incorporate that community-based mental health providers and then possibly considering some virtual mental health services being provided to our students. Um, and then one other thing that really came out um, with this is our research did show that some schools do have the mental health supports built into their tiered systems um, of support for students. Um, but what we're noticing is that the community wasn't aware that these were available for their students. Um, and then another thing that we thought would be great for people to leverage is the already existing mental health website that was developed by VDOE. I think a lot of times the community just doesn't know that it exists. The parent might recognize or the student might recognize, I need some help, um, but where to go? So really making sure that um, that information is being given to all communities. Right. And from what I understand about Virginia tiered systems of support, um, it, it sounds like it's a framework where you can basically leverage things that are already happening in schools, right? Like it's a framework for facilitating existing mental health interventions and identifying opportunities to maybe plug in in some places where there is need. Um, mm -hmm. Because anytime that there's a new like system that's implemented in a school's the the feeling can sometimes be like this is one more thing that I necessarily have to do, whereas with a tiered systems of support, it seems like the whole idea is that these are things that you're doing anyway. 
that this is just a, a like sort of a a thoughtful structure for us to be able to understand what's happening in the school so we're not duplicating efforts. Is that consistent with how you see a tiered systems of support from a mental health support standpoint? Absolutely. It's about putting that structure structure in place um, so that everybody's aware of what is available for students. And I also think that it's it's also important to make sure that the teachers are understanding why you have these tiered systems of support um, from personal experience of implementing um, MTSS within my schools. Um, it takes a long time to get teachers to understand that structure. So there does have to be some professional development. And I know that we talked about that later um, in one of the questions, but there really does need to be um, professional development provided to teachers so that they understand the why and that they understand that structure and how it best supports our students. I was going to add on to that, Kate, too. I think for us, so my background was really in special education, and we see tiered systems of support very often when you think of academics and interventions when you're measuring progress. So you put an intervention in place and set a duration and measure whether or not it was effective. And if it's not, then you know you need to either add something else or you need a more intensive intervention. And that just hasn't seemed to existed for mental health. We seem like we're triaging and managing students that would potentially qualify for tier two interventions, but we're just sustaining the status quo and, and patchworking it. And then all of a sudden we're at a tier three crisis. Um, and so I think the system is really important to make sure that we're systematically like collecting the data and being proactive and being consistent um, alongside making sure that teachers and parents and families are aware of, of what is offered. And just for um, those who are listening who may be less familiar with um, the multi-tiered systems of support, and I know Kate kind of gave us some of the acronym suit because that's what we do in education, um, but MTSS, the multi-tiered system of support is the what, it's the what we do. VTSS in Virginia is the who, it's the people who are coaching and supporting MTSS. So whether we have schools who are part of VTSS or whether they're schools that are implementing without VTSS support, all of those schools are doing MTSS, which is something um, that's a little hard to navigate, especially if you haven't been involved in a school or division that has implemented MTSS in either model. That's all really helpful context. Um, and Julie had mentioned before about just the different roles that these school-based mental health providers uh, serve on, on, on a daily basis. Um, Teresa, what did you learn from this research about the roles and responsibilities of school-based mental health providers? What And what recommendations emerged from the findings? So we learned a lot through our quantitative survey data when we were asking for administrator, teacher, and then the SMHP, the school mental health professionals. We really recommend that we put our most qualified, like most educated and experienced SMHPs in the roles where students need them most. And so we see sometimes our school psychologist is doing a lot of special education testing and is in a lot of meetings. And so other maybe less educated or trained or qualified personnel are the ones providing those crisis supports because they're the ones that are most successful in the building, but they're not really the ones that are the most trained to provide that level of intervention or support. Um, so those were our key takeaways regarding the roles and responsibilities. Right. And what I think is interesting about that is even if you have like a clear definition for what a school counselor or a social worker or psychologist is, 
it seems like there'd still be so much variability in how it's actually how that job is executed. Like at the, the high school where I worked, there was five of us and we had the same job title technically. We did a lot of the same things, but our strategies were were different. They just they varied. And so it seems like one of those things where you would want to have clear guidance for what the expectations of the role is, but maybe also like understanding that these are professionals in the school that we want to make sure that they have autonomy to be able to to execute the job based off of the context where they are serving students. Um, Just to add to that, um, we talk a lot about what the roles and responsibilities are of individuals. I think it's important for us to also identify what they should not be. Uh, A lot of times when you have folks who aren't tied to a classroom or a class schedule or that kind of thing, they end up being folks who catch a lot of things. So whether it be testing, whether it be hall duty, whether it be lunch duty, um, you know, whatever it happens to be, a lot gets dumped on those plates of people who have lots of flexibility, quote, in their day. Mm -hmm. Um, So we need to protect those individuals as well for like, yes, these are the things they're supposed to be doing. But if we continue to put all these things on their plate that they shouldn't be, they won't ever have time to do it. So kind of also identifying this is not what a counselor should be used for or a school psychologist should be used for um, is also a good idea. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think setting those hard boundaries, especially as a school leader, is so important. Um, Like just as an example today, we responded to a call for a student in crisis and it took almost two hours. Um, And that is time that was well deserved for that student. But if you have already put all these other operational duties on someone's plate, then they're really not available to respond um, and and be the, the service provider that those students need and deserve in those moments. Right. And it's particularly important to protect that time when there's rising mental health needs in schools. And the research very clearly indicates that, especially considering what the ratios are for students to school counselors, social workers and psychologists nationwide, but also in Virginia, compared to what the actual recommendations are. And part of that is a pipeline issue. So, Aaron, could you talk us through that? What did you learn about the pipeline of school based mental health providers and how to potentially enhance it from your research? Absolutely. Um, we, I think it is an understatement to say we learned a lot. <laughs> we learned a lot from um, people in the field, from people who are considering going in the field. And honestly, we learned a lot from people who have never considered it because they didn't even realize that this was an option for them. Um, and so a lot of recruitment efforts are really focused on graduate schools um, or towards the end of four-year degree programs when a lot of people at that point have made a decision about what they're doing. Like they, you know, I completed an education program to be a teacher. So that maybe is not the most ideal time to recruit them into a new profession. Great time to recruit them to a specific district if there's a need or an opening. But so when we approached recommendations for pipeline, we approached it similarly to many other areas in kind of a phased approach. And I think you nailed it earlier as well, David, when you said looking at context, the contextual information. Um, So in Virginia, there have been a lot of policy changes around school counseling ratios. So our school counselor numbers in Virginia are really very good. And so when we look at recruitment, is that where we wanna focus most of our recruitment efforts or do we need to look more at our school social workers and school psychologists who have recommended ratios very similar to school counselors, but we know that those ratios are not nearly as close in Virginia right now. And so um, some, some of the focus group participants said it best when they said, 
I didn't know there was a school psychologist at my school <laughs> or a school social worker at my school. So looking as early as K-12 schools and making sure that those people are visible in schools and that all students kind of know who they are and what they do and how they may access them in a way that, that students know what teachers are and what principals are and what school counselors for the most part, right? What what they are and who they who they are and what they do. Um, but considering that as well, we also, in addition to considering kind of grow your own programs and really encouraging students in K-12 to start considering those um, career choices early on, there's also that kind of middle ground, right? Our community college students, our early undergrad students who are in school but maybe haven't yet made a decision um, about kind of what their next steps are. But it really, we did have to acknowledge in both the literature and in the data we collected in the state of Virginia, there are some significant barriers associated with getting the degrees that are required for some of these professions. Um, it's incredibly expensive to complete a graduate degree program. If you have completed a graduate degree program, it is very cost prohibitive to complete a second one to re-specialize. Um, so we did you know, bring up some re-specialization options, which Virginia is working on and has some options for right now, how uh, people who are already licensed in one field may be able to um, switch their specialty by going through a less intensive program since they already have so much of the foundation. Um, but one of the things that we found to be less effective was trying to encourage re-specialization for community mental health providers to move into the school field. And that's simply because we don't have enough of them either. <laughs> so we are, you know, as, as a state and a country, we need more mental health professionals in both the community and the school. So really, how do we encourage at a younger age, earlier in collegiate education, people moving into these human services fields? Um, and that it's very, there are a lot of options. It's very open-ended, but it is, while there are some similarities between how we can recruit and support teachers, there are some pretty significant differences that we have to acknowledge as well. Erin, while you were talking, it, this really reminded me of one of the most powerful quotes from one of the interviews we did during this time. And I know our viewers can't see us right now, but to be very transparent, we are a group of obviously well-educated white women who were able to access this privilege of higher education. And we were talking in an interview with somebody who was working towards her doctorate in social work and was considering whether or not she would go into the school setting. And she said, there's a reason we all look the same. It is such a privilege to access this level of education. It's expensive. It takes resources. It takes empowerment. Um, and so I think one of the things that will stick with me forever is the importance of being really intentional when we target that pipeline and recruit who we need to be in our schools that we need these professionals to reflect the students they serve and so how do we um, you know be really intentional with that and make sure that we are accessing an equitable approach to our pipeline yeah that's a great point and it seems like the the pipeline piece of this is absolutely important um, but also when you're considering ratios, it's also, like, even if you have a, a, a well-trained workforce for school counselors, social workers, and, and psychologists, 
part of this also comes down to decision making about how many do you put in a school, right? Like I keep coming back to my experiences as a school counselor. We had um, five school counselors when I was there for 1600 students. So I had a little bit more than 300 students on my caseload, which is technically more than what the American School Counselor Association recommended ratio would be. And that was all I could handle. Like there was students have needs, right? So like there was just so much that happened um, every day. And that same school where I used to work is now down to four counselors with roughly the same number of students, just because of kind of repositioning that's happened in the district. So it seems like that's part of the equation too, for what we need to consider is how are we staffing our schools, right? So like making sure that we have a pipeline of well-trained school-based mental health providers, but also if we're going to prioritize mental health, how many school-based mental health professionals are we going to be putting in the schools to actually support the students who um, are there. And speaking of policies, let's zoom out from, from a policy standpoint here. Julie, what are the current policies related to school-based mental health providers that you focused on on your research? Because there's um, clearly plenty of policy around this, but what specific policy recommendations emerged from the research that you conducted? Um, well, what we noticed first was the current SOQs that are being recommended. And of course, that just recently changed um, to specifically address school counselors. Um, but what we noticed is, in general, there wasn't a lot of definition around all of the other uh, mental health professionals. So what we noticed in Virginia is they have kind of focused on that school counseling position, um, trying to get down to that recommended ratio of one to 250. And while we haven't gotten there, we are at about one to 350, which isn't terrible, um, but the, you can obviously see the benefit from the state putting a focus on school counseling um, because there isn't a num like an actual defined um, ratio that's necessary in schools for school psychologists or school social workers, you can see that there's a larger discrepancy. And Aaron kind of alluded to this earlier, you know, we need to get down to like one to 500 for school psychologists. And we're kind of stuck at one to over 1500 right now. And even less for um, school social workers, we need to be at like one to 250 and we're at one to like 2000. Um, so if there can be a little bit more of intention on defining what the ratio should be for each position, defining what those positions are, um, defining who can fill an SMHP legally, as far as that kind of specific role goes, um, that that's really important. So, you know, again, we kind of jump back to the roles and responsibilities. It's, it's the theme between roles and responsibilities and staffing and structures that just continues to scream at us through all of this research. Um, but again, to define those roles and responsibilities, by category. So for each position, not just school mental health professionals as a whole, but what does it mean to be a behavior analyst, um, a school psychologist, a school social worker, every single one of them. Um, also to make those job ratios specific so they can continue to improve the way that school counseling ratios have improved. Um, and then just a requirement we feel like for annual school training for mental health. Um, we do a lot of mandatory training, whether it be dyslexia awareness, child abuse, things like that, um, with mental health kind of just emerging as this crisis right now, we think that it's important that whether it be through recertification or we think it's really important that through annual training, teachers have time to focus on that mental health need. And what's really interesting is, you know, you often hear, um, and it, we were all teachers, like the, the people present on this team right now, we're all teachers and we know what teachers are tasked with. And so often when we say, you know, teachers providing mental health support, um, the initial response is, well, teachers aren't trained for that, or there's no additional time for that, you're already teaching. And when you really consider mental health support through that kind of tiered lens we discussed, mental health support from teachers 
can be providing routines and procedures in classrooms for predictability. It can be responding to students um, using an appropriate tone, modeling tone, um, and creating norms and expectations in a classroom. So really best practices in teaching that many teachers are already doing. And it doesn't, unless that has been explicitly taught that one of the reasons you're doing this is it is supporting student mental health. Then when as a teacher you hear, I need to support student mental health, it could create an uncomfortable situation where either a teacher kind of checks out and goes, I can't do that at all, or maybe trying to provide a support or service that really isn't appropriate because it's not something that they're trained to do. And so when we're looking at training um, and kind of what does that training look like, it's also essential to consider this is the training that I would be involved in. Every member of a school does have a role in student mental health, but it's all very different. And this is how I can gain access for that student to the mental health support they need and what I can do in the meantime. Right. And part of that, Aaron, I think is uh, how we define mental health. And so making sure we have a consistent understanding about what mental health means, because I think some of the um, the concerns that teachers might rightly have about providing these kinds of mental health supports is that Sometimes that's under the assumption that like when we're talking about mental health, we're just talking about stress, anxiety, and depression, things that are potentially diagnosable, but mental health is also helping with coping skills and thriving and overall well-being and promoting resilience. And so it's those everyday things that we can do as educators that can really make a difference in that sense. Um, and so considering the the state-level change that you're advocating for for this project, how might a state-level task force provide guidance to schools about the implementation of mental health services? Kate, what are your thoughts on that? Sure. So one of the things that we actually did through our first four recommendations um, in our capstone project was we provided multiple recommendations for VDOE to create guidance documents um, for schools. It's a lot of information to consider. So we recommended that VDOE creates a task force in order to have multiple voices at the table um, as they develop this guidance for schools to develop a more comprehensive guidance document. Um, the voices obviously should include teachers, administrators, superintendents, current school mental health providers, students, as well as community members. Um, we thought that VDOE could really start by providing the task force with the key areas of focus of what they want to see in this guidance document. Um, and this would include some continuous planning um, through the use of those data collection tools that we've been talking about, building those community partnerships, being able to provide virtual mental health supports, um, being able to clarify those responsibilities um, of each SMHP, um, and an approximate number of how much time e each of those SMHPs can provide direct student mental health services, and then how to align division and school roles and responsibilities is a big thing that schools would need guidance on. Um, another key concept that we've talked about today that we think would need some guidance provided to school divisions would be on that tiered systems of support, offering ways to create uh, universal best practices, how to implement the tiered systems of support for mental health, developing a universal screener, defining, again, coming back to defining those roles of SMHPs, and just ongoing professional learning for all staff. Um, we also recommend that this task force would develop some ways to grow, to develop those grow your own programs um, and how to recruit SMHPs. 
So basically what we feel is that overall, this task force would be creating the guidance that schools so desperately need in order to best support student mental health. And that guidance piece is so critical because school divisions are the ones who ultimately make decisions about a lot of these things, but having clear guidance from the state can really help to facilitate some of those processes that you've, you've described. And so considering everything that's emerged from your research, there's there's so much to take away from it. And I really encourage people who are listening to to take a look at the link that's in the, the, the description for this episode and to check it out on the website so you can really understand the depth of the research that this team did. But if you had to identify one key takeaway from this research that you hope will impact policy and practice related to school-based mental health in Virginia, what would it be? And Aaron, let's start with you. So I think I can say that I'm incredibly encouraged by the work that VDOE is doing right now to incorporate a number of these recommendations into existing work and into kind of long range planning, which is phenomenal. Um, Quite honestly, the fact that this request for assistance occurred is showing that as a state, we're prioritizing student mental health and prioritizing um, matching students with high quality providers to do that in our schools, which is incredible. Um, I do think what I hope comes from this is increasing awareness of who those professionals are and what they do all the way down to our little kindergartners and classrooms so that we're building a system where not only are we building a pipeline, but we're building a recognition of the importance of providing mental health support and kind of normalizing that mental health is part of our school for our students, for our staff, for everyone. Just kind of piggyback with the awareness piece. I think that we've lived in all of this so long that it's a pretty realistic truth that our hope and outcome, like what we hope is going to come from all this might be very similar. Um, So yes, like awareness of all the things that um, the current school mental health professionals are doing every day. How can we continue to support them to be able to Um, do what they were trained to do and what they can do so well, um, which will in turn help serve students as much as possible. I also think, and I'm just going to shout this one out because I know I'm, um, this is true to me and I, we all have similarities with what we hope, but um, I also hope that different schools of different sizes can find ways to operate within their level of resource. So not every school division has a thousand people that they can assign to these kinds of roles. And the more you get into these smaller divisions, the more those resources are really stretched. So I would say that I also hope that this, um, is a way for people in different kinds of environments. And, you know, my heart is with rural schools that you can go and find different creative ways to address the problems to most meet the needs of your students, whether that be through telehealth, whether that's community partnerships, um, whatever it happens to be. But it's just as important for those rural schools that don't have as many school mental health professionals to be able to meet the needs of those students, especially because oftentimes in those communities, there aren't resources that someone can just go to down the street. I agree, Julie. I also want to go back to what Erin said, too, about making our school mental health professionals accessible. So when we did our interviews, another undergraduate student who said she would never consider going into this field um, actually said she had associated 
school mental health professionals with bad students. And please don't like doing air quotes, no students are bad, but you only saw them when there was a major problem. And that's what became associated um, is something is wrong with that student. They clearly need help. And that is not a good thing. I think putting into place these tier one and tier two interventions not only provide like a system and foundation for building positive mental health in our youth, but they also provide an outlet for our youth to ask for help or to um, bring attention to something before we do reach that level of crisis. And so just putting these systems into place where we come at it from a more proactive rather than reactive lens is what I would really like to see come out of this. Um, I guess for me, I also agree with everything else that the other teammates shared, especially with that awareness piece. Um, I think oftentimes what you don't know, you don't know. Um, so I think building that awareness is really important. I would say that my biggest hope is that school divisions will receive um, some much needed guidance to help support student mental health through those tiered systems of support. Um, and honestly, that all students have access to those student mental health supports that they all need. For me, I think it comes down to the fact that all of our students deserve this. And I think that we are working in the right direction. The fact that there was a request for assistance put in um, goes to show that people recognize that mental health is, is an area of concern um, and it's something that needs to be addressed. So my hope is that we are able to continue to implement the tiered systems of support while also receiving some clearer guidance um, from Virginia Department of Education to best support our students. I think it goes back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Like if our students are not safe and healthy and well and feel like they're in a place where they can learn, then what they come here to do cannot be accomplished. We have to address our students where they are and learn to meet their emotional and mental health needs first. Absolutely. Uh, this is, if there's ever been a time to to build our schools around mental health supports now is definitely the time. And I've, I've mentioned this already on this uh, this episode, but just... This is um, excellent research that really serves as a resource to anybody in Virginia who's interested in supporting the mental health of students in schools, and not just if you're working at the state level, but also at the school or division level. So I highly encourage people to take a look at the report after you've listened to this conversation. And we're going to need to leave that there for now. But if you'd like to read this report and learn more about this team's recommendations for expanding access to school-based mental health services in Virginia, you could check out our website at merck.soe.vcu.edu slash projects. Uh, there you will also find research and resources from various Merck studies, including our Supporting Mental Health in Schools study. If you'd like to stay up to date on Merck research and resources, you can sign up for our listserv on our homepage. You can also subscribe and listen to other episodes of Abstract wherever you get your podcasts, including SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Our thanks, as always, to the VCU School of Education for supporting the work that we do at Merck and to all of our partner school divisions, Chesterfield, Goochland, Hanover, Henrico, Petersburg, and Richmond Public Schools. Many thanks to doctors Aaron Sturgis, Julie Ellis, Kate Pushjack, Teresa O'Day, and Maggie Hartley for authoring this report and sharing what they learned with us today. And of course, thanks, as always, for, to you for joining our conversation, wherever you may be. We hope that you will share this episode with anyone who you think might find it interesting or helpful. This has been another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium and the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues and ideas in public PK-12 education. Let's talk again soon.